0: The Verso Podcast, the home of radical thinking.
1: People do have an understanding of themselves as oppressed.
0: There were about 6,000 peasants in the peasant army, and of those, it is estimated at least 5,000 were killed. There's always been a
1: radical possibility for average people to engage with their world in a different way.
0: Those who weren't killed, Some managed to escape, a lot of them were captured.
1: And there's always been a desire on the parts of the people who rule to suppress that.
2: Hello and welcome to the Verso podcast. My name is Eleanor Penny. In the early 1500s, Europe was ripe with chaos and unrest as the princes of the Holy Roman Empire skirmished amongst themselves and faced off against the powers of the Catholic Church. Meanwhile, the merchant classes were on the rise, and the peasants, still largely bonded to the land and forced to labour for local lords, could get understandably riotous. Into this scene stepped a young priest and scholar named Thomas Munzer, who travelled around Germany preaching about freedom both from earthly sin and from the tyrannies of emperors, knights and landowners. The end of the world was coming, he said, and the kingdom of God was on its way. You might have heard of his more famous mentor Martin Luther, who in 1517 managed to infuriate the Vatican by railing against what he saw as its corruption and vice. Munzer went one huge step further. He didn't just call for religious reform – he called for the head of every prince in Germany. If everyone was created equal in the eyes of God, then how could we possibly justify that some people were doing backbreaking labour in the mines and the mudfields, while other people were lounging around in throne rooms? In the words of 14th century English rebel leader John Ball, when Adam delved and Eve span, who was then the gentleman? Eventually, Thomas Munzer helped lead the German peasants' uprising of 1524 to 1525. After a bloody battle with royal troops and mercenaries outside the town of Frankenhausen, Munzer was captured, tortured, and executed. He was condemned as a heretic and as an agent of the devil. It was the springtime of 1525, and he would have only been around 36 years old at the time. Among those who condemned him was his former collaborator Martin Luther, who is now widely thought of as the father of Protestantism. So how did the German peasant uprising unfold? What was the relationship between politics and theology at this turbulent time in history when early capitalist forms of power were just beginning to unsettle the old order? And what lessons can we learn about the life and sudden death of Thomas Munzer himself? To learn all about this and more, I talked to Andrew Drummond and Eleanor Janager. Andrew Drummond is a historian, a novelist, and a translator based in Edinburgh. His books include four novels, a history of Scottish railways, and a biography of the 18th century adventurer Maurice Beniofsky. His latest book is The Dreadful History and Judgment of God on Thomas Munzer, The Life and Times of an Early German Revolutionary, and it's out now with Verso Books. Eleanor Yanniger is a historian and a broadcaster, and she teaches medieval and early modern history at the London School of Economics. She's the host of Going Medieval series on History Hit TV, and the co-host of a history podcast, We're Not So Different. Her books include The Once and Future Sex and The Middle Ages, A Graphic History. We talked about Tyrants and Merchants, popes and peasants and roving priests about apocalypticism and the radical dimensions of building God's kingdom on earth. Andy, Eleanor, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you on the show.
1: Hi, Eleanor. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm absolutely delighted to be here. Thanks so much for having us.
2: Well, okay, we have a lot of um, a lot of history to cover, a lot of religion to cover, a lot of eschatology to cover. So let's dive straight in. So we think and talk about this revolutionary prophet, rabble-rouser, etc. as German. And there are, you know, many senses in which that is, you know, in fact the case. But Germany, as we know it, doesn't really come into existence in, say, like the 1800s. So can you give us a sort of a broad overview, Eleanor, of what the polity is that he's living in. Like, what does that look like? Because I'm sure it's certainly not a nation state as we maybe might recognize it today. Mm
1: -hmm. Yes, this is a, a really interesting point, actually, because when we think about Germany or use the term German to talk about the subjects of the Holy Roman Empire now, it's kind of a linguistic distinction. And it's not something that people at the time would necessarily shy away from either. Um, You know, there is an understanding that the Holy Roman Empire, which can mean any number of things. At this point in time, it sort of means from up by the North Sea down to into some of the Italian city-states. You've got some bits of what we would consider France in there. You know, it goes over into Austria and had gone into what it was the Czech Republic at the time, but um, the Hussites have cut themselves off. But this is something that you will see people say. They will talk about their linguistic status as Germans. And it's something that other people within the Holy Roman Empire will also throw around. Uh, So for example, you'll see Czechs refer to Germans all of the time, uh, usually in a a kind of uh, insulting way. Um, (laughs) You will uh, certainly see that from people within the Italian lands and things of this nature. But it does make sense, even if it is anachronistic from our standpoint, because really the economic engine of the Holy Roman Empire at this time is within the German lands. And, you know, certainly there's a lot of money uh, within northern Italy and within Austria, but these are kind of urban powerhouses that are making quite a lot of money. Um, You really have a lot of what we would call burghers, so the people who live in the cities who have immense political connections and money. And this is one of the things that kind of brings us to this interesting place in the sixteenth century because from a traditional standpoint, you know I, I hesitate to use the term feudal because feudalism isn't real, but that would be an entire episode of a podcast that we can't get into <laughs> uh, but you know you have you have lords kind of up the top, so the princes within the Holy Roman Empire um and then you have noble people, you have knights who weighed they have a lot of political power, yes. But suddenly you have a lot of people who have a lot of money in the cities themselves. Um, And this is part of what the problems that they begin to have religiously stem from as well. Uh, Because, you know, you may have heard, you know, the oversimplified story of how Martin Luther comes into being. He doesn't like that indulgences are being sold and so he he nails something to a door. And, you know, certainly that's in there. But part of the reason that indulgences are being sold is that they're being sold very specifically within a German context right now, and it's because Germans have money. And it's also because the Renaissance, quote-unquote, has started down in Italy, and the Pope wants a fancy new Vatican, um, which, you know, and, and it's inflicted this this hideous building on us all, and deprived us of some very good you know, Romanesque and Gothic architecture as well, I would say. Uh, but there's a reason why Martin Luther is quite peeved and aggrieved very specifically about indulgences, and that's because there's this very particular milieu in the Holy Roman Empire. They have money, the church wants it. How do you get it? Well, go up there and offer people some money. Um, At the same time, at the head of the Holy Roman Empire at the time is Charles V, who you may know from his excellent chin. So he is a Habsburg, and he is currently ruling the largest amount of land that anyone in Europe has ever seen. So not only has he been elected Holy Roman Emperor, but he also holds Spain, um, and he also holds lands in the Americas. And people are really uncomfortable with this. Uh, First of all, obviously, it's very difficult to administrate this much land in in early modern context. It takes a very, very long time to move between these places. He's often at war with France because Francis I, the king of France, wanted to be Holy Roman Empire. He's annoyed, so you can't can't administrate both Spain and the Holy Roman Empire because you can't even walk over there. You know, everyone's got to get in a boat. (laughs) There's Barbary pirates in the Mediterranean. So also, basically, political administration is falling apart. So the princes kind of see this as a potential for getting more power on their side. You know, they're kind of annoyed by the fact that the Habsburgs have more or less taken over what had been an electoral position as the head of the Holy Roman Empire. And they'd kind of like to keep some taxes. They would also like to keep some taxes considering they don't feel that they're being administrated very fairly. But then having said that, there are very real religious grievances that have been bubbling along this entire time. So yes, indulgences are part of it. But also, you know, the church basically every 100 years or so goes through a desire to cleanse itself. Um, and you see this in various ways throughout, you know, the even the antique period, but certainly in the Middle Ages. So every 150 years or so, everyone will say, oh, well, I... The priests have rather a lot of wives, don't they? I feel like that's not good enough. And then you get the Gregorian reforms. Um, they'll say, oh, the church has rather a lot of money, doesn't it? I don't think that that's great. And then Franciscans come into being. And then everyone notices that the Franciscans have rather a lot of money and everyone says that they don't like that either. And, you know, so you have reforms after reforms. And then, of course, at this point in time, you've already had the Hussite rebellions in Bohemia. And so the Hussites are basically Protestants before it was fashionable. They're led by Jan Hus, uh, who was attached to the university in Prague, and he was really inspired by the Wycliffeites here in England. And he believes rather a lot of things, but principally among them, that uh, spirituality is something personal and that individuals have a spiritual responsibility for their own salvation and that one has to have a personal relationship with God that can't necessarily be mediated through the church. And as a part of this, he is very devoted to doing things in Czech rather than in Latin. And, you know, stop me if you've heard all this before, but um, he gets killed by the church uh, and basically becomes in the eyes of a lot of Czech people a martyr. The Czechs revolt, many crusades are called against them, all of which fail. And everyone just kind of agrees to ignore the fact that one of the richest kingdoms in the Holy Roman Empire, Bohemia, where all the silver comes from, uh, has suddenly broken away. So the German princes realize it can be done. This is sort of the thing. They know that you can have a religious revolt and they know that you can suddenly keep all of your money even if people send armies after you. And they also realize that it would be really difficult in certain circumstances for Charles V to do anything about it. So it's an immensely complex situation, part of which is political, part of which is religious. But of course, in the 16th century, there is no differentiating the two things. Religion is political, politics is religious. Um, So it's a mess, basically, (laughs) if that makes sense.
2: So, Andy, if I could get you to intervene in this mess a little. You connect this particular turmoil of this moment with a kind of changing of the guard economically, right? There's a, the rise of what we might begin to recognize as like the middle class, merchant classes, burghers, there's an increasing industrialization. And I'm wondering if you could give us a sense of how this is is changing the relationship between um, uh, the church and a uh, temporal power that we might be able to separate those two.
0: I think um, a couple of things I'd like to pick up from Elner there. One was the the legacy of, of Jan Hus in Bohemia and the debt, I think, that Luther in particular owes to Jan Hus. My particular stance on Luther is, yes, he was an important figure, but he was standing, as it were, on the shoulders of people who had gone before, not only Jan Hus, but, as Elner mentioned, Wycliffe in, in England. And that comes back to really to haunt the, the German Reformation in the early 1520s. As I explained in my book, Thomas Münzer did have connections with, with people who had connections with radical Bohemians. So there's a lot of that going on. The other point that Eleanor mentioned was um, the growth of, we won't call it industry, we'll call it ore extraction, um, not only in Bohemia but across the border in Saxony in Germany which uh, the the mines were being developed in the latter half of the 15th century, which obviously brought a lot of money into Germany, but equally well started to establish a separate group of people. I'd be hard-pushed to call them capitalists, but we're we're getting to the point where nascent capitalism was beginning. And they were people who invested in the mines, because the mines in those days took a lot of money to uh, establish. But equally well, not only money, but they were busy chopping down trees and diverting rivers and all kinds of things to provide the fuel that would uh, fuel the furnaces to melt the ore down. So people like the Fugger family in Saxony rose to the top of the pile and became extremely rich uh, people indeed, to the extent that they were actually servicing the debts of uh, not only the Roman church in, in Rome, but uh, many of the principal nobility in, in Germany. So all that was going on in the background. And um, when Luther nailed his theses to the door in Wittenberg in 1517, if indeed he did at all, nobody's very sure about that. <laughs> when he did that, he was responding to major changes in the way that um, the economy and the political governance was functioning.
2: Andy, I'd love to stay with you for a little bit. Could you tell us a bit about how this guy Thomas Munzer comes along and intervenes in and shapes these theological debates?
0: Munzer pops up quite early on in the, the Reformation movement. Already in 1517, he's making noises which resemble those of Martin Luther. And in fact, there's a couple of letters that have been left behind between him and Luther, where he basically says, yes, we're thinking along the same lines. But as Luther developed his ideas on the Reformation between 1517 and 1520 or so, Münzer began to edge away from many of Luther's positions. Luther, although he was a leader, didn't have a monopoly of reform ideas at all. And the people who supported him were quite free to go and think their own thoughts. And it was actually quite early on in that period that Munzer himself started to look at some of the medieval mystics, the people like Tauler and Zuzo, who had quite a different view of how a Christian communicated with God. Theirs was a very individual, mystical philosophy that said to speak with God, you need, first of all, to have suffered. Now, suffering, I should point out, is not just physical suffering, although it could be, but it's it's a spiritual suffering, it's doubt. It's dealing with doubt in your faith. So by the time that Munzer got his first important post in the church, which is a, as a preacher in the town of Zwickau in Saxony, he was already well down his own road of reform. And he was willing to start talking to a group of, radicals in Insvika who were influenced by the Hussite radicals in Bohemia. So the, jointly with them, he continued his ideals of reform, which uh, sometimes got quite physical. Uh, <laughs> not, not, not Munzer himself, but certainly his followers were quite adept at stirring up a riot and stoning priests and chasing priests through the town and, and all kinds of interesting activities, which earned, of course, some condemnation from the Lutherans. And eventually, I think there was pressure put on the town council of Zwickau, and eventually Münzer got booted out and made off to Prague there to to pick up the Hussite threads. And by the time that um, Luther emerged from his sort of self, not self-imposed, but from his exile in the Vartburg Castle, Munzer really was talking far more radical stuff than, than Luther was. And Luther began at that point to start stepping back from uh, the more radical reforms because his belief was that the Reformation would only succeed if... It was given the protection and therefore the approval of the Saxon princes. And that is the point where Munzer and Luther really parted ways because Munzer was having none of that.
2: <laughs> and tell me more about Munzer having none of that. <laughs> <laughs> but,
0: um, already when he was in Prague, he, he Munzer wrote a... A manuscript. It was never published. It was a manuscript which is now known to us as the Prague Manifesto for no particularly good reason except that it was written in Prague. <laughs> and it's in there he started laying into the, not not merely the Roman church and his descriptions, descriptions of the Roman church are quite startling. At one point it's described as a uh, a chamber pot in a coal shade, (laughs) which, um, fair enough. Um, But he also started uh, attacking the people whom he described as academics. He called them schriftgelehrte, people learned in the script. And this was fairly clearly an attack on the Lutherans, who were by and large reliant on the written scriptures, the Bible, for their faith. And Munzer was heading off in a completely different direction. He, like the mystics that he'd just been studying, he was all for an individual connection between a person and God, which did not rely on the Bible, did not rely on Scripture, did not rely on canon law, or or indeed on people who uh, interpreted all of that stuff and by the time he managed to settle down again he, he sort of drifted around for a couple of years between prague after prague so it wasn't until 1523 that he got another post this time in the small town of Alstedt in saxony and it was there that he you know he he felt comfortable he had the support of the people and the town council and he started introducing his own reforms And at that point, he basically cut off all communication with Wittenberg. He wasn't interested in them anymore.
2: So Eleanor, you've mentioned that uh, the political is religious and the religious is political. It's impossible and nonsensical to start pulling those things apart during this period. And something that jumps out from the text from this period of history is this deep connection between revolution, what we might think of as a revolution, and the idea of the end of the world, right? Now we're thinking about we need revolution because we don't want the world to end. Then, you know, not so much. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: It's quite interesting, right? Because um, I think we tend to forget here in the modern world is Christianity is a linear religion. You know, there's a beginning, there's a middle, and there's an end. There's the beginning of the world when God made everything. There's a middle, which is when your friend and mine, Jesus Christ, shows up. And then we are kind of somewhere moving towards the inevitable end point when there will be the apocalypse, the world will end, the last judgment will happen. And then the thing that is really eternity will begin. So everyone who's damned will go to hell, everyone who's good will go to heaven, and then that's just going to be forever. And for people in this period, that isn't necessarily a bad thing. (laughs) And um, one of the reasons why that's not necessarily a bad thing is it is understood that as a part of the last judgment, you will receive justice. And there is kind of an understanding, part and parcel with that, of the fact that the world is not a just place. And Sometimes, you know, it kind of sucks to be a peasant. And, you know, let's keep in mind that about 80% of the population at this period of time in Europe are peasants in in one form or another. A lot of those people are still unfree. They're serfs. So maybe about 70% of the population are not able to move down the road if they feel like it. And uh, whether or not that is justified is a question for the ages. So, you know, one of the things that kind of Christianity does fairly well for a big part of the medieval period is it puts the fear of God into rich people, at the very least, you know. I often say that we could use a little bit of that. You know, and rich people grapple with the idea of like, well, will I go to heaven? Because clearly this is unjust, clearly the fact that I'm able to take money off of people all the time is is kind of terrible. And they're solved very often by members of the church. You know, the church will say, oh, no, it's fine, really, provided you give us rather a lot of money and you start a nunnery. And, you know, if you did some charity to the poor, that would be good, You, you know, these kind of things. So for people who are experiencing profound injustice or difficulties, oftentimes they identify that, aha, well, this might be the end of the world because a big part of the apocalypse is in understanding that the world will get worse. Before it gets better, so you know part of this is that the antichrist is going to show up and he's going to lead everyone astray. And there's going to be the persecution of the faithful. Um, Meanwhile, everyone sinful is going to be elevated. Um, So anytime anyone is facing a large amount of persecution, they go, "Oh well, ha! I've identified this. Perhaps I am experiencing some of this kind of eschatological suffering." And you know, also when terrible things happen, that can also be associated with the apocalypse. So, you know, here in the 16th century, it's no longer the Black Death, but we, ha- we have recurrent plague pandemics. You know, bubonic plague might just show up at any moment, kill sort of everyone. Um, when you are an agrarian society, whether or not your harvest goes well can mean the difference between, you know, people literally dying of starvation or not. And... Um, You know, there are all these variables that people then identify as the end of the world. And then certain people, and among them Munzer, are sort of like, yes, and finally, thank God, let's get it done. I want to get into the last judgment because I want to get to the part where everything goes right. And there are also different ways of looking at it. So sometimes people say, oh, it's the end of the world, and then you get right to the last judgment. Some people also think that there will be this period of tribulation, and then there'll be a thousand-year reign of peace, where actually the world is going to be quite nice for a thousand years, and then you're going to have the last judgment. And these are kind of um, academic distinctions that people argue about and grapple with. So when Munzer is kind of talking about the end of the world, which, which he does, he does so in a hopeful way. He does so in a way that says, yes, finally, we're moving towards this inevitable kindness that will be seen. The The wrongs are going to be put right. Uh, the, the rich are going to be humbled. And all you have to do is look at any piece of art from the early modern period or indeed the medieval period and look at the last judgment. And the people that you see in hell, you know, there's always a, you know, everyone gets up out of their graves and that bit's cute. And then um, people on the right are going up to heaven the elect. And on the left, everyone who's damned is going down to hell and they're being thrown in a hell mouth. And who do you see in the hell mouth? You always see bishops. You always see popes. You always see kings. And sure, there's just like a couple other people thrown in there for good measure because, you know, you've got to pad it out a bit. But there's this expectation that the mighty are going to actually be judged for the fact that they're kind of jerks. So (laughs) Now, you know, it's a threat if people kind of really want the world to end. But you've got to understand that within a totally Christian society, this is an inevitability and it's also a good thing.
2: So Eleanor just mentioned the elect, and that's a really important concept for Thomas Munzer, for many of his peers. Andy, can you talk to us a bit about, okay, what do we mean by the elect? Who are these guys? How do they imagine their kind of responsibility on earth? Are they supposed to be shepherding in uh, the kingdom of God? Are they supposed to just be doing what they're told and avoiding sin? Like what's happening with that concept?
0: The elect with Münzer, yeah, they they pop up quite early on. They're, they're mentioned already in in the Prague Manifesto, and they become increasingly important in his arguments argumentation over the over the following years. Essentially, the elect were people who gained their faith by suffering. And as I said before, the suffering doesn't necessarily have to be physical. It, it In fact, Munzer probably meant it more as, as a spiritual suffering or as a psychological suffering. These are the people who can talk directly to God, who understand what God wants, and it's their responsibility to spread the word about that. The Apocalypse, which Alna just mentioned, which Munzer and and just about everybody else uh, was expecting, was to be prepared for by the elect. They were to do as much on earth to sort out the the sinners, the the godless tyrants, and 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 people like that, as they could, and then God would come down and, and sort us all out for, for once and for all, thank goodness. <laughs> so their their role was to... They, they, weren't, they weren't necessarily to be goody-goodies. There is a fairly famous letter that Munzer wrote to his, his own followers uh, in the town of Stolberg in 1523, I think it was, where he basically told them to calm down that they needed to not, you know, sit around in pubs and boast about how God was going to come down and sort things out. They needed to look in themselves and get their own uh, house in order, as it were. But having said that, they, they weren't, you know, they weren't going to go around in, dressed in rags and long beards and things like that. They were perfectly ordinary people. The one thing that um, they could do, which other people couldn't, was, was to talk to God. And that, although it sounds quite bizarre, actually. I mean, from a 21st century viewpoint, you, you could describe them as a bunch of nutters. But actually, what Munzer was doing there was justifying a move away from all the hierarchical structures of the late medieval and early modern period. He was saying, basically, you don't need a church with all the trappings of priests and bishops and uh, popes and and all that stuff. And in fact, as it developed, he he was saying, you don't really need all these lords and ladies and nobles sitting on top of you telling you what to do. So it was quite a radical concept.
2: And that radical concept gets put into action or, you know, attempted to be put into action, of course, in the uh, German Peasants' Rebellion, starting in 1524, going into 1525, where Munzer eventually gets executed, uh, assassinated, depending on who you are, depending on your framework. I'd like to talk a little bit about what the complaints were, right? Um, how did this kick off? We've heard a little bit about just, you know, how appalling it was, unsurprisingly, to be a peasant bonded to the land, taxed to the hilt by your local prince, all that kind of thing. But what brings those tensions to a head at this particular moment? Can you um, talk me through that a little bit, Eleanor, maybe?
1: Yeah, so of part- of what is going on here is that things are, you people can kind of see that the tensions are heightening. You know, people can see, for example, that ooh, suddenly rather a lot of people are getting richer in a number of ways. And, you know, burgers in the cities, certainly. And a lot of that is kind of coming off of very, very hard labor for peasants and, of course, miners, especially in this region in Saxony as well. For whom things are not getting better, to put it mildly, things things are staying rather the same. Um, And it's not just the taxes, and the taxes are terrible. But there is also you know physical work that a lot of the time that you have to do. So you know you will be required to kind of get out there and fix a road for your liege lord, or you know help bring in the harvest, this that and the other thing, you know, and it's not just your money, it's also your time. And it's also kind of the theoreticals of one's freedom as well. You know, the the unfreedom that people are living under, the, the fact that they don't have uh, the ability to make their own decisions is kind of there. And you're also living at this time through this theological shift. So while Martin Luther is, to use a historical technical term, a complete bootlicker, um, (laughs) and doesn't want to reinvent the wheel or, or change the social order at all, there is an understanding that there should be kind of more on the table for people as individuals. So you know, yeah, you would go to Mass and you would hear the Bible and the Bible would be in Latin. You get the sermon in your vernacular language. But there is this kind of distancing and this, uh, you know, this putting of people in their place. So it's not just that people are unfree. It's not just that they're being taxed to the hill. They're also kind of being told constantly that they're lesser than and that they are undeserving even of their own kind of relationship with God because you know they shouldn't trouble their simple little peasant minds about it so they're kind of also being insulted uh, quite a lot in the one thing that they're supposed to have that's kind of for them you know so if there are constant complaints about this throughout the medieval and and early modern period but increasingly in the late medieval and early modern periods and uh, people saying you know i go to church and you know my priest doesn't even speak my vernacular language you know you could be saxon and they've landed you with some bavarian guy and you're like i don't even understand this form of german you know People in the Czech lands complain about this a lot. They're like, I don't know, I'm Czech, and they've got a German guy in here. I, don't, I can't even understand the sermon. So there, there are these walls that are built up about your spiritual understanding as well, which is supposed to be the thing that guides you through. And now we are also at this point in the 16th century, we're kind of a century into a series of peasant revolts, so you know here, of course, um, in England, we've we've had the Peasants' Revolt. You have the Jacobri rebellions over in France, quite famously. But they they break out constantly and all the time because people do have an understanding of themselves as oppressed, and they mediate this in in a religious manner because you know as you already said Eleanor. There is this like, hey, wait a minute. (laughs) I, I don't recall lords and ladies being in the Garden of Eden kind of a deal. And so while you see people getting richer, when you feel as though you don't have access to even a kind of spiritual outlet, then these things can coalesce. And they certainly do Colas in Munzer's theology, um, where he kind of gets right to the point of things and says, yeah, you know, you, you are being deprived of something. Um, and it's not just money, which is certainly a part of it, but you are being deprived of the keys to your own spiritual awakening. And that is, for him, I would argue, you know, part of this idea of suffering. So, yes, yeah, you're suffering at the hands of these, these people who, who think of you as lesser than. And people don't, words about this. You know, Luther will write constantly about how he just doesn't think peasants are capable of these things. And, you know, they have to be patted on the head and led by the hand in, in order to get to their salvation. And of course, you know, the church thinks what the church thinks, which is, well, I gave you a priest. You know, that's, that's good enough. And so when you have people for who things are getting better, it's very, very difficult for people who are being oppressed to not notice that. And, you know, it's also kind of testament to how well-connected the early modern world is, actually. You know, people are aware of these things. They are paying attention. They aren't actually just, you know, a bunch of yokels who who can't understand these things. They, They are actually quite... Clever. Don't know if you've, you've heard that before, but regular people are smart and, and can under, understand these things. <laughs> Wait a things.
2: minute.
1: I know, right? So.
2: so let's talk a bit about um, how this particular rebellion kicks off. If I can go to you, Andy. I'm also curious about how it spreads, right? There's not mass literacy, Twitter will not be invented, sorry, X will not be invented for um, several hundred years so we can't be like, come down to Trafalgar Square, it's all kicking off so how are people picking up on these revolutionary ideas and uh, how are people kind of sharing and organising and, you know, taking up arms uh, in some kind of uh, collective?
0: Yeah, there's, there's a sort of um, Marie Antoinette moment uh, at the start of all this, uh, Marie Antoinette and let them eat cakes, and There is a a story that back in uh, the summer of 1524, there was a countess in South Germany, a countess, Clementia of Lupfen, who was uh, having a bad day. (laughs) She wanted to make some jam and she wanted her maidservants to do a bit of sewing. And she went and looked in all the cupboards and couldn't find any berries for the making of the jam. And she'd run out of snail shells. Now... Snail shells were used at that time for winding thread around. So, a fairly basic item for doing your sewing. So, the the obvious answer for Clementia was to summon some of her husband's peasants and tell them to get on with uh, collecting snail shells, collecting berries and to bring them to the castle. Um, when the peasants pointed out that this was the middle of the harvest and uh, in doing so they, they stood to lose the harvest, she was having none of it. So this this kicked off uh, what what you might describe as a an early industrial action. It was a it was a strike essentially by by those particular peasants, and just one of these things that that triggered a fairly widespread response throughout southern Germany. All the other peasants were thinking along the same lines of what the hell does this woman think she is? But they were thinking of their own counts and countesses. So it began to spread across South Germany in uh, the summer of 1524. And people began to get themselves organised. They, they banded together in, in larger and larger groups and marched around, essentially just protesting. And then it actually petered out a bit because come the the late autumn and early winter, uh, nobody in the right mind was going to be marching around South Germany. <laughs> It was just too bloody cold. <laughs> but in in the early part of the following year, in 1525, it, it all started up again. And at that time, all of this, I, I must emphasize, took place in southwest Germany. It didn't really spread to other parts of Germany at all until 1525. So in early 1525, the bands came together again partly because, you know, there was nothing else to do. The peasants' work was more or less over for the winter. All of these peasant bands had their own list of demands. They wanted this, they wanted that, they wanted the next thing. And a lot of them were to do simply with lightening the the burden which was placed on peasants, which, which Elinor's already mentioned, you know, the, the need to drop everything and bring in the harvest and drop everything and go mend the roads, in one case, drop everything and and uh, take a cart 100 kilometres across country to fetch some wine. <laughs> These things all happened. And, and the list of um, demands tended to be very localised. Uh, there were hundreds of them and they were all localised. There was even one where one of the demands was to... Ask for a, a new organist in the church because the you know the, the present organist was absolutely hopeless. <laughs> but when the peasants came together in in early 1525, these demands were all collected, uh, probably by a man named Chapu, into what became the Twelve Articles of Memmingen. I think it is, and these articles basically brought together the generic demands about the tithe, about doing labour. But significantly, the very first of them was to have for um, parishes, for congregations to have the right to employ their own preacher. Now, this actually harks back to, essentially to Luther and, and to people like that. And I think one of the reasons that the demands were able to spread so successfully over the next two or three months. Firstly, it was because there was this standard set of demands which everybody could just about identify with. And there was the printing press, obviously, which people began to use. So copies of these were were sent all over Germany. The other thing was that some of the preparatory work, the, the groundwork had already been laid by, oddly enough, Luther and the Lutherans the changes to the the church, which had been sort of filtering around for about three or four years, well, actually more than that, about seven or eight years by then, meant that the demands as embodied in the 12 articles were immediately recognisable. So, Although, as you say, there was no instant communication and, and um, well, not even slow communication, but the, the word spread quickly. And it also spread because the peasants were actually marching about and they would turn up at a village or a town and they would knock on the door and say, look, this is these are the kind of things we want, are you willing to join us? And some would say yes and some would say no. But the word spread and it spread quite rapidly And it also spread to other parts of Germany, most particularly into what we know as central Germany, which is uh, the Franconia and Saxony, where it began to turn up about a month after the events in southwest Germany.
2: So I can make minorly educated guess that um, the German princes uh, variously and the church were... too happy about a massive rebellion that they had on their hands. So, Eleanor, could you tell us a bit about what the efforts at suppression looked like? And I guess what that tells us about how power operated and who had it, who wielded it, who paid for it at the time?
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, It's uh, a a major downer. (laughs) So uh, the princes just, uh, they have a monopoly on violence, right? And, and that is how things uh, work. So, you know, sometimes if you have a rebellion, you know, everyone will just kind of ask you to put everything back. So in the case of like Munzer, sometimes people would just go, oh, I don't know, sack a chapel and burn a chapel. And in which case, uh, sometimes everyone is told they're very naughty and then they're asked to, you know, kind of produce one or two people who can be blamed. But in the course of a kind of larger rebellion, the answer is to just kill everybody. Um, And this is oftentimes incredibly shocking, both for the people who are living then but also us now. Because one of the things that the peasants kind of do, at least within the German context, is they don't really kill that many people. Now they will steal all your things, you know, which is kind of like seen as liberating them, you know, the, the... It was their labor that paid for these things in the first place. They brought in this harvest, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, they will absolutely take all of your beer and give it to everybody else. Um, They will sack a church and take kind of the rich paintings and things out of it. They will go and, you know, redistribute the tax money that their lord has. But they don't kill that many people at all. In contrast, the princes and lords will kill as many peasants as they see fit. And it's kind of an interesting one, because, you know, to a certain extent, you're you're completely dependent on these guys to get your harvest in, where it's like, oh, honey, I don't see you out in the field, you know, but (laughs) it it is a major threat to social order. You know, if peasants understand that they can kind of get away with rebelling, even if their demands aren't met, then that brings into question whether there is this this society that is stratified in in a way such as it is. So we see hundreds, if not thousands, of peasants who are just killed basically in cold blood. You know, when they rebel, they've got a couple of sticks. Maybe they've got a gun. You know, but it's rather a lot of pikemen. And they have successes by overwhelming people very quickly. And when the lords eventually organize against them, they have guys on horseback, which are, you know, the equivalent of tanks at the time, and they have guns and they have swords and they have crossbows and they have all these things that peasants are very expressly denied uh, oftentimes. You know, there, there are laws preventing peasants from having swords, from having guns, uh, just in order to to curb things like this from happening. So the violence is incredibly one-sided. This isn't to say that it isn't, you know, violent to sack a church or something like that. But the, the point is that people are really not harmed by peasants in anywhere near the numbers that the princes are. And, you know, kind of to make matters worse, then you often have people who are then cheerleading that. So, you know, like Luther very expressly is like, yeah, and it serves you right. The, the, the entire time, you know, well, we were not trying to subvert uh, the power of lords. Oh, heavens, no, you, like you peasants have kind of got this all wrong. So imagine that you kind of have all of your profits taken away from your harvest. you're you're taxed miserably. You have to go fetch wine and fetch snail shells and drop everything. You can't move to another area if you want to. All of your friends have just been killed. And then oftentimes what will happen on top of that is the lords will say, and you have to pay for everything. So you you are then taxed even more and you have your harvest taken away even more. So if you then live through the repercussions, it's a terrible, terrible crackdown. And the lords are kind of like, yeah, and that'll show them. And there is kind of nothing to stop them from doing this. And they really believe that the only thing that peasants will respond to is brute force. So it is incredibly repressive and very expressly violent as well.
2: Where is Thomas Munzer in all this, Andy? What's the the role that he's playing in these uprisings? He's sort of variously called a a leader, a rabble rouser. Martin Luther sort of dabbles around the edges of it very, very uh, briefly. But, you know, Thomas Munzer seems to be rising to some kind of leadership position. But I don't know, you tell me, what does that leadership look like? Is it right to talk about it in terms of leadership?
0: Uh, Yeah, um, the one thing that Munzer probably was not was a military leader. Although he was, uh, or he is deemed to be the the leader of the peasant uprising in Furingia, which is part of Saxony, he was more of a Political leader. If, if it's, it, uh, I know it's an anachronism to say that, but <laughs> he, he was more of a political leader than, than than anything else. He supplied the justification, if you like. He was the one who. He was actually quite astute. He he realized, for example, right at the very end when there were the peasants were preparing for a final battle against the combined army of the of the princes. I should say, combined the Catholic and Protestant army of the princess. The local leadership, before Munzer had arrived uh, to join them, were angling to have talks with the local nobility to try and sort of calm things down. The first thing that Munzer did when he arrived was to write to particularly stroppy letters to the two local nobles uh, essentially to wind them up and try and provoke them into launching an attack on the peasants before the major part of the army arrived from, from elsewhere. So he was quite well aware of the dangers that the, the, the peasantry and, I mean, we've we've said peasantry throughout here, but the there was a lot of support for, for these things in the towns and cities as well. It was patchy, but there was a lot of support from these people as well. So Minter was well aware of that. He One of the things that still strikes me as, as quite interesting is that when he was expelled from, from an, yet another town, he was expelled from Mühlhausen, in the autumn of 1524 he went off to nuremberg to print a couple of pamphlets and then he didn't go back to his stomping ground which is in the north he went straight to southwest germany where he'd heard that the the peasants were were taking the law into their own hands and he was there for a good couple of months and he was he was completely in a in a new environment He, up until then, he'd been essentially, I'm not going to go as far to call him an academic, but his his comfort zone was talking to people and writing and being in the towns. And then he went off for, you know, a winter in southwest German uh, countryside, where he met the type of people he'd really never met before. And when he came back from that, he was actually quite a different person. And he took the uprising in um, in Thuringia and Franconia quite seriously. So his his role really was to, I think I said it before, it was to provide the justification to the peasants of Thuringia for what they were attempting to do. And he did it very well. Uh, He was recognized as a leader in that sense when the... Prince's army, just before the final battle, they sent an ultimatum to the peasant army to say, look, you hand over Thomas Munzer to us and we'll let you go away. Now, you know, they didn't really mean that, but (laughs) they were quite happy to to, take Munzer and then kill all the peasants. But the peasant army actually refused point blank to to send Munzer across, although it would have been an easy way out for them. But by then they were getting a bit twitchy because they were looking down the hill I mean, there was about 6,000 on the top of the hill, peasants, and they were looking down the hill and there was, you know, 4,000 horsemen. They, they were feeling a bit twitchy about it all. But they did not hand over Thomas Munzer, which says quite a lot for Munzer's standing, I think. And it also has to be said, uh, and I'm maybe jumping ahead here, but after Munzer had been executed after the battle, amongst the, what we now call the Anabaptists, who were essentially the sort of radical inheritors of, of the, the Reformation after the 1525, a lot of them in central Germany recognized Münzer as their spiritual guide. So his, his, his role in the uprising and after the uprising was actually quite significant in central Germany, it has to be said, not in southwest Germany.
2: I would love to know a bit more about this connection between a political rebellion and, and heresy and how they were understood as sometimes effectively the same thing. Can you tell me about that, Eleanor?
1: Yeah, so the thing to understand about heresy is heresy is essentially whatever the church says is heresy. Right. That's glib, but it's also true. (laughs)
2: Um,
1: So essentially if the church declares something as heresy, um, then it therefore is. And, And certainly what the larger Protestant Reformation is engaging in is considered to be heretical. But the number one way that something can be deemed heretical is if you are threatening the social order. Right, So um, you will see people dance this line in a really fine way throughout kind of the, the late medieval and early modern period. And the number one way to kind of get people on side is to not disrupt order, right? So if you are saying that, oh, yes, the Antichrist is in the world and it's the end of the world and the church needs reform, but the Pope needs to lead this reform, as we see often, with reformers, that's fine. Go like go ahead and say that. You know, if you if you say that and your local king is a is a bulwark against you know the, the, the terrible people within the church and, and he is, you know, the person who's going to lead us forward, that would be okay. What wouldn't be okay is is saying that, oh, yeah, and it's rotten to the core all the way down, you know, screw the church, screw my local lord, I am going to stop paying. That's when people kind of sit up and start paying attention and that's when you start getting armies in your backyard. And, you know, we see this kind of play out throughout the period. So, for example, you know, people didn't like who's Jan Hus, um, because he was preaching uh, basically an inversion of social order and saying that, you know, people should be more independent, uh, both in their spiritual uh, journeys and also, you know, the kingdoms should be a bit more independent. Um, But it's not until he's killed that anybody actually physically rebels and everyone goes, uh uh-oh, you know. Whereas now, a hundred years later, you've got people who are already rebelling (laughs) under under Munzer and and, and the likes of of the same ilk. Um, So it is heretical to take up arms against the people above you, basically because the church said so. Because, you know, the church and and Luther are telling you that the way that the world has organized is divinely ordained. Now, this is kind of the period in which the concept of the divine right is first articulated. But there is an understanding that, well, you're the king because God made you that. You don't necessarily rule by divine right, but... God kind of ordered things in this way and you were born here, so hey, presto, look, you're the king, fantastic. And same thing, if you're a peasant, well, oh, that's that's a bad thing, but God has made it that way. And so to say, well, hang on a minute, I think people are doing this mm-hmm. and, and God actually isn't a huge fan of me uh, tithing quite so much to my Lord, that it would be deemed necessarily heretical because it threatens the structure of how everybody gets paid. And the higher echelons get paid. And it's the higher echelons who make the decisions about what heresy is. And, you know, this is how, you know, Luther in opposition to Munzer really kind of keeps himself safe and is able to do the things that he wants to do because he's like, well, I want to be very clear that the lords are great. And, well, sure, we're going to get rid of the church, but we're not getting rid of, you know, Frederick the Wise, who is putting me up in his castle right now in order to write all of these letters. So if within a Protestant context, we've kind of got rid of the concept of heresy that is deemed to be heretical because of a church structure, we are essentially saying, especially, you know, what Luther is saying, is that, well, okay, but that is evil. You know, these are things that are inspired by the devil. And this is something that he's very clear about when he talks about people who are quite radical, like Munster that they have been swayed by the devil. Um, And so it's not necessarily heretical, but it is demoniac, in character. And that's something that can be kind of thrown around, even if you get rid of the hierarchy of the church. And so he's saying, well, you know, you want to get rid of the hierarchy of the church, but you don't want to get rid of the hierarchy of social order, the people who are keeping me safe, and everyone who's telling me that I'm a very special lad indeed. (laughs) And so Munzer kind of fouls afoul of the fact that he is threatening everybody's payday with this.
2: So there might be people looking at Thomas Munzer, Martin Luther, Jan Hus, all these guys and thinking it's the great man theory of history. Um, this is the theory of history whereby stuff happens by dint of a few dudes and often it is dudes stumbling from one moral or technical inspiration to another I'm wondering what you kind of make of that in the context of these stories and yeah what what do we learn by this kind of biographical approach to history what does it give us? So
1: I, I think that you've hit on kind of one of the problems here is we, you know, we don't want to stumble into this trap and say, you know, oh, history is a series of dudes rocking. You know, that's not <laughs> how, how the things work. But what we can say is biographies like this tell us about the range of thought and the range of experiences that can happen within a particularized social context. So, you know, to a certain extent with Munzer, it's a kind of a, well, if things had shaked out differently, maybe he would have uh, behaved differently. You know, he kind of tries to to get a couple of lords on side, and the (laughs) lords are like, I don't don't really know about all of this, sir. so, you know, sure, there's a kind of sliding door moment there about whether or not his theology would have been picked up, but he's already working within a fairly radical milieu. You know, he's already working around people who are kind of making these same arguments. Sometimes they are not preachers. Sometimes they're just peasants themselves. But he is able to kind of get places within churches. You know, he ends up in Allstadt because there's a, there's a patrician woman who's kind of like, yeah, well, actually I'm, I'm, I'm down for the revolution and let's get this guy in. And that is a symptom of the fact that people are really hungry for this. You know, he's able to articulate these things because people want them and there's a clear demand for it. He isn't the one necessarily creating the demand, if that makes sense. He's certainly articulating it. And now, can his sermons or, you know, the mass that he creates that is in German, can those be spread and wind more people up? Yes, they absolutely can. But you couldn't come into a society that is completely satisfied with the level of pastoral care that they're receiving, who love their, their, their local priest, who like how everything is happening. And they're not just going to get riled up because someone said, oh, hey, can I offer you a German mass? You know, that isn't how it works. What he's doing is he's responding to a demand. And one of the things that is quite interesting about Munzer is, you know, because of his dislike of uh, the intellectual system such as it is and the academic system and the way that he sees that has cut ordinary people off. He becomes kind of a mouthpiece for these ordinary people. And so it's very difficult, of course, to ever... Extract one person out from uh, you know the, the, the milieu that they're in. I am mean, not to get all Deleuze and Guitari on everybody, but it's <laughs> it's a rhizome, right? You know, you, you can't just say, Oh well, oh, this one guy showed up and suddenly all the peasants' minds were blown. And and also I think that, that really does a disservice to all the people that we don't get to hear from. So every illiterate peasant who doesn't get to write down every single thing that they believe. So What we have here instead is a person who is literate, a person who has connections good enough that he can start writing letters to other bigwigs and, you know, someone who kind of can exploit uh, printing materials and things like that, but it's not really the printing of these things that sways anybody's minds. You know, again, a lot of these people are illiterate, but it's the passion that he stirs up and the the fact that people are moving around and they want these things and they hear that somebody is offering them something that they're already desiring. And so as a result of that, we need to understand Munzer, I think, as a product of his time and place. And biographies like that let us understand what it's like to be an individual within that world. So that's the real value here. And and it's it, it, it adds a richness to our own understanding of the past.
2: Let's circle back to the importance of Thomas Munzer in the rebellion and also particularly I'm thinking about what it meant for the rebellion when he was executed. Was this a sign that the rebellion wasn't going well and just a sign or was that more of a a cause, a beginning of the end?
0: The fact that he got executed, he wasn't alone. He there were plenty of people getting executed. In fact, after the after the or well, at and after the battle, the last battle at Frankenhausen, there were about six thousand peasants in the peasant army, and of those it is estimated that at least five thousand were killed, either on the spot or in the mopping up operations afterwards. Those who weren't killed, some managed to escape, a lot of them were captured. And amongst those captured was Menzer, who was he immediately dragged it off to the local castle and tortured and interrogated so that he could produce a confession, which would then be published and everybody would be able to shriek in horror all the things he'd he'd wanted to do. Having got that out of him, he was then taken back to Mühlhausen where he was based and along with several of his co-reformers was executed. Now, by that time, it was pretty clear to just about everybody that the rebellion was over. The The princes, the main princes, Duke Georg of Saxony and Duke Johann of Saxony and Prince Philip of Hesse all occupied Mühlhausen and basically just took the place apart, uh, find in, anybody who was left alive were fined. The women and children were instructed to sort of wear clothes that would indicate their submission. So the whole thing was effectively over. But there were small pockets of resistance, even even in the months afterwards. And rather surprisingly, back in Alstedt, which was where Munzer had worked before, even months several months after the the defeat of Frankenhausen. There were preachers turning up who were basically preaching the same thing as Münzer had done. So there were small pockets of resistance and there were groups who subsequently were identified as what we now call Anabaptists, people who took a very radical, individual, spiritual attitude towards the Reformation and who were quite happy to plot for the overthrow of government even even if they were utterly, utterly isolated. So things still went on after he was dead.
2: So how did the rebellion finally uh, come to an end?
0: There were two or three elements to this. I mean there were areas of the German peasants war. There was southwest Germany, which we've talked about, which was largely the the main arena for the rebellion there was also franconia which is sort of uh, just sort of north and west of bavaria if you like and then there was central germany and saxony and in each of these three areas the end came at slightly different times the i'm not i'm not an expert on southwest germany but certainly there were a number of significant battles that took place and Thousands of, of peasants and, and rebels were killed during April, May, June of 1525. In Franconia, it was much the same picture. That rebellion was put down, I think, in May. And in central Germany, in Thuringia, it was also May. The, the big battle was at Frankenhausen on the 15th of May. And interestingly, however, there, there were parts of Germany which were totally unaffected by the German Peasants' War. One of them was Bavaria, and a lot of the north of Germany was unaffected as well. So the end, to come back to your question, the end of the rebellion really came in uh, the early summer of 1525, and it came as a result of pitched battles between the armies of the princes and the nobles against the somewhat underarmed
2: peasants and townspeople. So, Andy, you've taken the title of your book from something penned by Martin Luther very shortly after Thomas Mintz's death, "A Dreadful History and Judgment of God. So there seems to be this uh, anxiety about... The the PR of someone who might possibly become a martyr. Um, tell us about that. Why does Martin Luther throw his lot in so heavily against Thomas Munster? and, and what's his uh, what's his impact just in the that little period after his death?
0: Um, I think I think. For for Luther, it was a question of making sure he wasn't blamed for the peasant's uprising. (laughs) People had already started pointing fingers at him saying, oh, well, you were talking about the freedom of the Christian man. You were talking about, um, you know, overthrowing the the church. This is all your fault. And that, I mean, clearly that um, accusation came from the Catholic Church, but people were beginning to look a little bit askance at Luther and saying, well, look, this guy Munzer, he was one of yours, wasn't he? So his primary response, which he started actually before Munzer was killed, he he actually started attacking Munzer in 1524 in in a couple of sort of... uh, Basically, he was fingering Munzer to the authorities. He said, look, there's this guy in, in... initially in Alstedt, you want to take a good close look at him and then make sure he doesn't do anything wild. And then again in 1525, in much stronger terms. So after Munzer's death, there was Luther writing this dreadful history, as he called it. There was uh, his uh, two lieutenants, Philip Melange, and Johanna Gricola, equally doing a hatchet job on Munzer all taking a slightly different approach to it but uh, essentially making sure that munzer was portrayed as uh, anything from a libertine to a self-seeking bloodthirsty maniac i mean i, th- I think if you look at the seven deadly sins of of uh, of the the christian church all seven sins were actually pinned on munzer in, in the course of a few months of of the summer of fifteen twenty-five,
2: <laughs> he really was busy. <laughs> yeah,
0: and and that that I mean it's, it's it's an old trope, but obviously the history history is written by the winners. So that all of that sort of his so quasi history written by the the Lutherans set the tone literally for for about five hundred years, <laughs> almost of of how Münzer was perceived. Oddly enough, though. Some of the things that Luther and Melanton put into their pamphlets about Munzer, they included the the texts of letters that Munzer had written. And the only way we have these texts today is because uh, Luther and Melanton included them. If they hadn't bothered, then we wouldn't know anything about
2: it. It's very helpful.
0: (laughs) It's very nice of them.
2: We've talked about this as a moment of huge flux, which maybe um, begs the question about how social forces get organised and reorganised in order to help put down this rebellion or revolution. Like, what impact does it have longer term on the formation of these states, these principalities?
1: Mm. And so one of the things that sort of happens here is, very unfortunately for what Munzer is attempting to achieve, is it in a certain way, it makes a hierarchy of who is allowed to kind of have new thoughts about religion and who isn't. And the people who are allowed to are people that Martin Luther and his circle kind of say are. And there's a huge propaganda machine that swings into action after Munzer's death to sort of cement this and make it happen. You know, we have all kinds of apocryphal biographies are written about him after the fact that, you know, basically there's just hatchet job after hatchet job about how evil he was and how he was inspired by the devil and how he wanted to, you know, take away... He wanted to kill everyone. You know, even when we do things like look at the outcome of massacres, for example, you know, when they would kill, like, one guy, and then when basically Munzer and his friends are all kind of attacked, you know, thousands of people are killed, and Luther talks about this as them being murderous. You know, He calls the peasant hordes murderous, when it's like, well, uh, homie, I, I feel like there's a kind of 300 to 1 death ratio here, so who's who's murderous, right? And this also has a knock-on effect later on for other reformers. So in particular, here I'm thinking about uh, the Anabaptists, who everyone is really kind of edgy about, who kind of, they really see Munzer as an inspiration, and their, their thing is that they think that only adults should be able to receive baptism because, well, how can you say that you've chosen God if you're a baby, you know, an infant doesn't have the inability to, to bring these things on themselves. And they are really active in terms of wanting to kind of break the social mold and also they're, they're big pacifists. So, of course, this is this sets everybody's alarm bells ringing. And, you know, they then get lumped in with Munsir because, well, in the first place, they're saying that they think he's a cool guy. But in the second place, everyone says, oh, well, see, if you let these people get their way, then you're just going to have marauding hordes of peasants again. And so it means that there is a real watchfulness about elements that are seen as going simply too far. There are, like, the acceptable reformers, which is basically anyone who is associated with Wittenberg, anyone who's kind of coming in from a very careful academic place that says that this has to do with reading and writing, actually, and uh, and who holds the keys to this. And anyone who then makes a case for a kind of spiritual and internal relationship that would also reorder the world is then considered anathema. Now, having said that, does that stop people from being Anabaptists? No, it does not. All of these things still kind of crop up as and when. But it also gives detractors a pattern that they can follow. Uh, they can say, "Oh well, oh, oh, what are you going to be like, Munzer? Are you going to? Is there going to be a big riot? Or well, and and it kind of gives them a reason for killing people before anything kicks off. So it's kind of a, you know a form of preemptive policing before there are police, such as it were.
2: Mm. So Andy, okay." Thomas Münzer is dead. To what extent does Münzerism, if I can put it like that, shape what would then kind of become Protestantism, which, as we know, has this very large impact on the the development of Western Europe, and you know is, is pointed to by people like Max Weber many years later as something key in the development of capitalism.
0: I don't think we want to exaggerate too much. I mean, the the there was an immediate adoption of of Münzer's beliefs and activities immediately after 1525 by, as I said before, the, the Anabaptists. These threads, if you like, sort of fed through later events in the 16th century. There is the the famous um, Kingdom of Münster uh, in, in northwest Germany, which was an Anabaptist community where they attempted to introduce Anabaptism as a an egalitarian society in the town of Münster, which lasted about 18 months. I wouldn't go as far as to say that Münster influenced Münster. We all get a bit tied up in Münsters here. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But there are certain threads that go through Anabaptism. And of course, Anabaptism did spread from Europe into England, and I I say England as a Scot, um, into (laughs) England during the the late 16th and early 17th century. So there is an argument, it's a bit flaky in places, but there is an argument that some of the things that Munzer was saying turned up in the radicals of the, the English Revolution in the 16, you know, between 1640, 1660 sort of time. So... Munzer didn't have an impact really on Protestantism as we know it, but he did have an impact on radical religion and on radical thought across several centuries.
2: Let's dig into that influence that he had on radical thought because he was uh, cited by Marx and more acutely by Engels as an example both of of a kind of inspirational radical figure but also as a proof positive of uh, why peasant rebellions and peasant revolutions are kind of doomed to fail I mean to look to the urban proletariat and having studied his life in so much depth that what do you make of that kind of take?
0: The, the very first thing I read about Muntzer many, many years ago now was Engels' hook on the the German Peasants' War of 1525, which actually even today, although there are quite a few misin, misinterpretations there, um, is, is a very good introduction to it. Now, he was obviously, along with Marx, was, was following a particular argument, which, as you say, had more to do with the, the urban proletariat than with, with the peasantry. I think what, what has happened since I mean that book was written in eighteen fifty by Engels, what has happened in the one hundred and seventy odd years in between, and as people have, on on both sides of the political divide, have have slowly but surely come to a, a position where they understand much more clearly what's, what what Münzer represented and what the peasant rebellion represented. I think, from from my perspective, what what Münzer was arguing for back in fifteen in the fifteen twenties has some echo today because he described them as godless tyrants. Let's put it that way. Now, I, I am by no means a religious person. I'm a complete atheist, but to me. I think, I think we can agree on, on tyrants as, as a concept. Mm-hmm. Um, there are plenty of them around. <laughs> and we, don't need, we don't need to name any names. But with Godless, I interpret that as being, I don't know, for example, people who don't care about climate change, people who don't care about the planet, people who have no empathy with the suffering of large masses of people. People whose only goal in life is to make obscene profit. Now, I'm I'm taking that concept. I'm not taking. Let, let me be clear here. I'm not saying that Münzer was talking about these things at all. But the concept of godless tyrants is one we can quite easily recognise today. I think.
2: What would you like people to take away from the story of, of Thomas Münzer? I think that the
1: story of Thomas Münzer is, you know, an incredibly sad one, but also it shows you how complex society was at the time. You know, I think that there are, what we're sort of taught about the Reformation is this really easy and pat thing, uh, which is that basically... Martin Luther dreamed it all up one day and isn't he a genius and isn't it so radical kind of thing. Whereas, you know, Luther is just a kind of expression of something that had been happening and percolating for hundreds of years and he's an incredibly benign expression of that. But also from a historiographical standpoint, you know, there's a reason we know all about Luther and nothing about Munzer as, you know, general individuals within a society. And, And that's because Luther isn't threatening. You know, here we are in a Protestant society in the UK, and uh, Luther doesn't really threaten the status quo in any way, shape, or form. He was saying that you can have a different relationship with the Bible, and oh, oh, guess what? That also means that uh, lords can have a different relationship, which means that they get more tax money. Isn't that fantastic, you know? And then this is how you get Henry VIII and other problems of that matter, you know? And so we are taught to relate to the Reformation in this particular scholastic way because it doesn't trouble our status quo at all. Munzer troubles our status quo. You know, Munzer shows that there is a real expression and depth among common people uh, in the early modern period and that this becomes charged and political quite easily. Uh, These are people who are serious thinkers. They are people who are engaging with their world. Um, And there are people who wish to change it. So although his ideas are crushed and there is a big historical movement against him, what we can learn is that there's always been a radical possibility for average people to engage with their world in a different way. And there's always been a desire on the parts of the people who rule to suppress that.
2: So Andy, same question to you. Final thoughts, what would you like people to take away from this story of Thomas Münzer and the rebellion more broadly?
0: I would hope that many, many people will simply never have heard of the German Peasants' War, mm-hmm. but it it was one of the more, probably one of the most important popular uprisings of the late medieval er, period and the early modern period. It was it was certainly one of the, one of the biggest up until the French Revolution of Uh, you know 1789 so one of the things obviously i would like people to, to take away is to understand that that thing did happen another would be that when people talk of the german reformation they will think probably initially of martin luther and what my book i hope argues is that luther was one of several he was certainly one of the more important ones but he was one of several. And there was actually a period in the early German Reformation when it could have gone several ways and not necessarily in ways that Luther would have liked. So I would like people to take that away as well. And I think also just the whole idea of how history gets written. As I say, it it is a trope that history is written by by the victors. But I... I've tried in my book to point out that all the things that Luther said about Mintz, all the things that his lieutenants said about Muntzel were not not only not fair, but actually a lot of them were completely untrue. So I I would like people to think about how history is written.
2: And on that note, I will have to leave you all with that thought. Andy, Eleanor, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thank you very much for having me.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure.
2: Thank you for listening to the Verso podcast. On this episode, we heard from Eleanor Yanniger and Andrew Drummond about Thomas Munzer and his fellow revolutionaries and church reformers in 16th century Europe. Next episode, will be joined by Matthew Beaumont and Annie Ololoku-Tariba to talk about Franz Fanon and the politics of the body. See you then.
0: You've been listening to the Verso podcast from Verso Books. This episode was hosted by Eleanor Penny and produced by Planet B Productions. For more discussions with radical thinkers, head over to versobooks.com.